Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's pray as we uh, come to uh, look at the next section of our material together. Heavenly Father, we do ask uh, that at the end of uh, a long and stretching day, uh, you help us uh, to, to focus clearly on what it is that you would have us say to us that you would help us uh, to understand you better and to delight in you and in your spirit and in your son and in your triune relationships. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Great. Now, uh, in terms of where we've got to, uh, we're on page six of the uh, handout bundle uh, that I've given you. Um, We're just about to start uh, session two. Uh, And this time we're actually looking at the Father uh, and the characteristics of the Father's love. That's uh, the the broad theme of what it is that we're going to be up to. Uh, You'll see that I've started off uh, with a a quotation this time uh, from something that I picked up on the the internet uh, that comes from Duke University Chapel uh, somewhere in the United States. uh, And uh, the uh, Reverend Dr. S. Wells Uh, says this, the Trinity isn't a fixed hierarchy, it's more like a company of actors that take different roles depending on the play that they're performing. Uh, So the son may be son from time to time, the father may be father from time to time, but who basically knows? Uh, Let me be clear, Uh, the reason why I put that opening quotation there uh, is to indicate something that probably isn't right, Uh, and it's there to provoke you and make you think, hang on, what's wrong with that? I smell a rat. Uh, or something like that. Now, uh, just in terms of uh, recap, uh, very briefly, uh, we were looking at the session this morning uh, about why it is that servant leadership is no longer straightforward for us in our time. There's the egalitarian, individualistic, the elements of suspicion that both leader and led very readily uh, have. We'd want to trace that back, wouldn't we, to a disordered love of self, that's marked by pride, by envy and resentment. And that stands in contrast to the Trinitarian character of God, who simply is other-personed love in various shapes and hues, as we were thinking about this morning, uh, as the Father and the Son join in loving uh, the Spirit, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. Now, as we're getting into this, we, we start to encounter a problem. This is heading two. Because uh, I've used the word uh, egalitarian uh, uh, in this morning's session uh, to describe a particular spirit that is unwilling, in a way, to to be led. And yet, we're meant to be talking about leadership uh, in this particular strand of uh, the the conference, even if it's servant leadership. Leader involves leader and led. So how can there be any kind of hierarchical structure in the Trinity? That starts to be the the, the question. And the claims made, this is heading 2.1 on on the handout, the claim that's being made in some modern Trinitarian theology is that the Trinity itself must be egalitarian in that kind of way. Now, uh, when you're talking about an egalitarian Trinity, it's one of those things where it's really worthwhile getting completely nailed down what the person means who's, who's using that word to you, because people do use it in different ways. Uh, so let's be absolutely clear that we're talking about a real disagreement or a real agreement, uh, rather than just assuming that we know what the other person uh, actually means. 
In one sense, it's pretty standard to say that the persons of the Trinity are equal, in that each person is fully God. That, that's simply uh, what uh, the, the Bible teaches and what the, the creeds have said uh, and is uh, standard uh, Christian doctrine. But what's actually meant when you normally talk about an egalitarian trinity goes a little bit beyond that. Because it's getting at the idea that if one person always obeys or is subject to another, then that means that the one who obeys is not fully God. Obedience is not something that you can do if you're fully God. That's the, uh, that's the argument, okay? So, uh, putting it another way, this is the, 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 the block just above the discussion material. Obeying makes you less at the level of being. Obeying makes you inferior. That's the, uh, the, the, the kind of tacit thought that's going on here. Now, just for a moment, uh, uh, either, uh, you know, either talk to yourself uh, or talk to someone who's, who's sitting next to you uh, or something like that. Uh, talk, anyway. Uh, uh, just, just ask yourself uh, if it's true that being under someone in that kind of authority sense makes you less, makes you inferior at the level of being, where does that leave leadership in the local church? Okay? So just a couple of moments, thinking through that particular point. Okay. Okay. It, it starts to spark off all sorts of things in your, in your head, doesn't it? Uh, as, you, as you think about this particular line of, line of argument. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a, a, a formidably kind of uh, fashionable one uh, just at the moment that if someone obeys, uh, then that means that they are being made inferior uh, in, in one way or another. Therefore, if the son obeys his father, uh, then actually you're making him an inferior being and he's not truly God. That's the uh, line, line of argument that's being put. Why would someone want to go down that kind of line? Well, this is page seven. Uh, there are a couple of reasons, I think, that spring to mind. First of all, heading 221, there's the whole idea of value. Because I think one assumption that very easily creeps in here uh, is that our value is attached to being autonomous. Why is it that you're as valuable as somebody else? Because you are always as autonomous as they are. You rule yourself to the same extent that they do, that they rule themselves. That means that if you are not autonomous in some way, but you have to do what somebody else says, that you are being made less, that you are being made inferior. So value and uh, autonomy are being put together in that kind of way. Uh, The second thing, uh, heading 222, relates to our ideas of love and authority. And here, of course, we're, we're back to what goes into being servant leaders or not. Because another assumption is that love and authority can't really be found together in the same relationship. You cannot simultaneously be loving and have authority uh, in that kind of of way. Uh, I remember uh, when I was was first a student, uh, anyone remember Argos posters? Absolutely revolting things. Uh, you, you, you went off, uh, and in those days you had student grants, uh, so you spent 50p on an Argos poster or something to cover the damp spots on the wall of your, of your bedsit. 
uh, and one and they'd have photographs of beautiful natural scenes with little mottos that go underneath. Uh, and one that was particularly revolting uh, showed a, a bird in flight uh, with the motto, if you love something, you'll let it go. Uh, and uh, you'll let it go free. Uh, and... I remember actually being given that by a girlfriend, and it was pretty clear what she was trying to communicate. <laughs> um, uh, but, of course, in God's providence, it now comes back to be able to help me explain what's wrong uh, with uh, some, some particular parts of, uh, of, of, of this line of, line of thought. Love and authority. If you love something, you'll let it go free. You love your seven-year-old child, uh, so you let them play over a snake pit. As soon as you put it in those terms, you, you, you start to wonder uh, about where love and authority actually do, do work together and where they compete, uh, and so on and so forth. This isn't to say that there's no such thing as the abuse of authority. Yes, of course there is, uh, and that authority can be used in an unloving way. Is it the case that necessarily love and authority don't go together? That's a different issue. Now, all of this, the kind of assumptions uh, that go to make up this argument that says that if you have to obey, then you're being made inferior, you're being made less. 2.3 on page 7, huge emotional freight, of course. Why? Because so much of this actually underpins contemporary discussion about husband and wife relationships. And the thing is, if the assumptions that I've pointed out at 221 and 222 don't hold true at the level of the triune God, and that you actually can be subject and equal, and that's a question for the lead, and if you can have authority and be genuinely loving, that's a question for the leader, then perhaps you can be at the human level too. So it's at this moment that you, you really start to feel the, the impact of what you think about the Trinity on everyday life. And of course the risk is that the answers we want in everyday life, for one reason or another, we will read back into the Trinity so that God may be in our image. And he will support uh, the particular pattern of social arrangement uh, that we actually want. Now, in the rest of this session, therefore, uh, we need to look at the character of the Father and the nature of his love, especially towards the Son. Let me stress that, uh, because it, it sometimes seems to me that when we talk about the love of the Father, or indeed the love of the Son, or the love of the Spirit, our first instinct is to think of the way that they love us. So when you say, you know, tell me about the love of God, uh, then it is very natural for me uh, to say, well, let's look at John 3.16, God so loved the world, that kind of thing. Now, that is absolutely true, but actually what we want to do in this uh, particular session uh, is look at the Father's love for the Son, not so much his love for us. It's not that it's not there or anything like that or that it's not important, but our focus is the Father's love for the Son, because I'm not sure we talk about that quite so much. Although the passage that both Ben and I were referring to this morning, the, the baptism of Jesus, uh, what is marked out for us is precisely that the Father calls the Son his beloved Son. So if we're thinking about uh, uh, all of this, we're thinking about the Father, uh, and what we're looking at is to see how in the Father, love and authority genuinely coexist. It is a loving authority 
and an authoritative loving. So, the father. Uh, Of course, when you stop and think about it, uh, this particular question about who the father is and what he's like is of singular interest to us because we have been adopted as his children. Uh, And uh, uh, therefore, how he loves does have that extra impact for us too. And if we're thinking about the father, we're obviously asking, you know, what is his identity and so on. Uh, This is heading 3.1, and one of the things about the Bible is that we don't have uh, a neat kind of chapter as you would in a a modern systematic Christian theology textbook uh, with heading 1, the Father, heading 1.1, introduction, uh, and and so on and so forth. It doesn't work like that. Uh, We build up our impression of who the Father is as we read the Scriptures and we read what he he does uh, and as we read what people say about him. So what is it uh, that we're told about the Father? Heading 3.2, one of the first things that needs to uh, drop in our our, our minds, one of the first pennies that needs to drop, uh, is the way that the Father is presented as the great giver. He is the great giver. Uh, Not just uh, uh, in John's Gospel, but certainly par excellence uh, in John's Gospel. Now, what I've done is put down uh, the NIV... Uh, version, I think it is, uh, of John 17 uh, on the handout on page uh, 7 and 8 uh, and 9. And what I'd like you to do uh, just at this point is simply underline or circle or mark uh, every reference that there is in this chapter to giving or granting, okay? And see who it is uh, who does it. So look for giving or granting words. Interesting, isn't it? How frequently giving gets referred to in this prayer. I mean, you strike out in verse 1, don't you? There's no reference there. But then it's, you granted, or you gave him authority over all the people that he might give. uh, And a give again at the end of verse 2. Then uh, you're into uh, verse 4, the work you gave. Uh, You skip verse 5 and you're into verse 6. Uh, you gave me out of the world, in verse 6, they were yours, you gave them to me, they've obeyed your word, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, verse 8, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them, and so it goes on. As you go through John 17, there's an awful lot, simply, of giving, isn't there? Huge amount Now, just stop for a moment, and let's let's not take this in a kind of blasé way, because I take it that when the the Lord Jesus prays this prayer and emphasises giving quite as much as he's done, and in particular is emphasising the way that so much of the giving comes from his Father, and that a lot of it is giving to him, what we're being told is that the Father is the great giver. What What do you think of someone who is a giver? What are they like? What are their characteristics? You love givers, don't you? You really do. Because givers, what are they like? Well, they're generous in character, of course, aren't they? That's the primary thing that you think of. But the other thing about givers is that, you know, one way or another, they have the right to give. To be able to give effectively, it's got to be yours in the first place to, to, to give it. And that's why it is so significant that we're told that the Father gives people to the Son. They were his to give. 
And once that starts to filter through in our minds, we find ourselves thinking, well, quite how much does the Father have then that he's giving all of this? But that's the emphasis of John 17, isn't it? That yes, of course, the Son is giving in various ways. Uh, A lot of the time he's giving on what the Father has given him. But giving originates with the Father. And at that point, let's go back to the uh, passage that we heard read to us. Uh, and we're going to be focusing in particular on John five nineteen to 30. Because here, in John five nineteen to 30, we're at heading 3.3 uh, on uh, page 9 of the handout. Here, uh, the, the, the great thing that we're starting to, to find is that the Father is the giver to the Son. What is it that you ex- expect uh, the, the Father to be like to the Son? Well, what's revealed to us is this whole idea of giving. And in a sense, that's exactly what you'd expect a, a father to do, isn't it? What does the ideal biblical father do? The ideal biblical father ensures that there is an inheritance for his son to be able to, to, to live in and to, to walk in. Uh, he makes sure that there is something laid down that he may give something uh, onto the next generation, onto his son. So, John chapter 5, verses 19 to 30. Uh, why are we looking at John chapter 5 uh, in such an intensive uh, way? Well, we're looking at it because John 5 is a hugely significant chapter in the, in the gospel as a whole because actually opposition to Jesus crystallizes at this point around the claim that Jesus makes to be son. Uh, remember that in John, uh, in the crucifixion narrative, in the, in the trial narrative there, uh, that uh, the reason given uh, when Pilate asks, you know, why are you wanting to have this man put to death, uh, the, the reply of the Jewish authorities is we have a law, uh, he called himself God's son, and by that law he ought to die. That's the thing that's really rammed into our, our faces in John's Gospel. Jesus' claim to be son is the thing around which so much of the opposition uh, actually uh, crystallizes. The setting uh, of uh, John 5, 19 to 30 uh, is uh, to do with this Sabbath cure. So verses 1 to 9, uh, there you are, you have this unfortunate man uh, near the sheep gate uh, and uh, near the pool there, uh, and he's uh, uh, been there for for such a long time and he's healed. uh, And you find yourself thinking, uh, this is a really happy story, isn't it? Uh, He's able to to go home, uh, run marathons uh, and all that kind of thing. And then you get to the second half of verse 9. The date on which this took place was a Sabbath. And it's that kind of lead balloon moment, isn't it? Because as soon as you say that, uh, you know that there's going to be trouble because something has been done or worked on the Sabbath. In particular, someone has taken up his mat and walked. That's going to be the issue. And therefore you get, uh, this is heading 333, verses 10 to 16, you have an initial charge, don't you? And it's all to do with Sabbath breach. So uh, look at verse 9b again. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. That's the Sabbath breach. And the trouble is, of course, someone has told him to do it. I was under orders, uh, you might say. So attention then shifts where? Well, it shifts to the person who got him to to do all this. Uh, Verse 16, 
So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. You could also say prosecuted him. Jesus said to them, and this is his defence, we're heading 334 uh, on page 9 of the handout. The defence comes in verse 17. My father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now, it it seems to me that you and I at, at that point tend to take a sort of backward step and say, what's that got to do with the price of bread? Or something like that. You know, what's all this stuff about father suddenly working and all the rest of it? What's that got to do with anything? So it's worthwhile saying why it is that Jesus uses this as a defence to a criminal charge, if you can put it that way. Well, it's a defence because who can work on the Sabbath? God can. Because on the Sabbath, uh, life is given, people are born. On the Sabbath, judgment happens, people die. God doesn't stop being God on the Sabbath. God is still God. Maybe the the day of rest that he's established in in memory of creation, but he doesn't stop being God on the Sabbath. And what has Jesus just been doing uh, as he brings this person who's been 40 years crippled or thereabouts, uh, as it were, uh, back to full health? Well, it looks like life-giving in at least a sort of fairly broad sense of the term, doesn't it? He's given life on the Sabbath. But that's the kind of thing that God does. And it's the kind of thing that only God can do legally. And that, of course, means that, uh, you know, if you're there as a a kind of uh, fairly um, orthodox-minded hearer, you're going to be thinking, hang on, all you've done is make it worse. You know, shut up, why don't you? Let's just leave it with a Sabbath breach rather than going for the, you know, the the full McCoy of blasphemy degree one. Uh, And uh, what happens, of course, verse 18... For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, there's something else on the charge sheet now, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And the trouble is, at that point, you think Jesus has done as Adam did. He has sought to be God's rival. Who is it who tries to make himself equal with God? Well, Genesis 3, that's what Adam does. Who is it who envies God? Adam does. Is Jesus envious of God in that kind of way? Is he setting himself up as a rival, alternative uh, kind of claimant to the throne of heaven? Now, that means that there's a big question at the end of verse 18, and the big question is, how does Jesus come to have the same powers as God? Has he tried to seize them, which is what Adam did? Has he refused to be led by God, in the way that Adam did, but sought leadership for himself, you could say? Or what? How does Jesus come to have the same powers as God? That's the question. That means uh, that Jesus then is going on in verses 19 to 30, we're on page 10 at heading 336. That means uh, that what Jesus is doing in verses 19 to 30 is actually spelling out why it is that he has the same powers and why it is that he is no envious rival of his father. Why is he no envious rival? The reason why he is no envious rival of his father is precisely because all these things are gifts from the father. It's the only thing that works, isn't it? 
It's the only thing that works that means that Jesus has not uh, actually committed the sin of blasphemy, setting himself up as a second alternative God. You know, playing Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, to God the Father's McDonald's, so to speak, in the spiritual fast food game. What's going on is that uh, Jesus is saying, okay, yeah, uh, I have the prerogative powers of God, giving of life, exercising judgment, and I have them, not because I'm a rival, not because I don't love the Father, but because the Father in his love has given them to me. So have a look at verses 19 to 30. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. And there, what we're being told, of course, is that the son isn't an independent operation. The priority lies with the father. Father and son work together. As we were thinking this morning, singularly useful phrase uh, in, in Ben's talk, inseparable operation. Dearly beloved of Augustine. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And then we go on, don't we? The father loves the son. And what's the consequence of all that? Well, uh, even so, the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. The father judges no one, verse 22, but is entrusted all judgment to the son. Why? Verse 23, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So the Son, the Father loves the Son and has given him what? Well, as we read this passage, we're talking about the powers of judgment. As we go on, we read about the way that he raises people from the dead, is able to raise people from the dead. Those are the prerogative powers of God the powers that go with being God. So God the Father, in his love, has given the prerogative powers. Then have a look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has also granted the Son to have life in himself. Life in himself, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And of course it's getting at the idea that God the Father is not created by anybody. He has no beginning. He's just there. And this is one of those moments where our minds kind of bend uh, with the awesomeness of what it is that God the Father has done. He has granted the Son to have the same kind of life as he himself, God the Father, has. Life in himself. Uncreated life. Which means that you can never say of the Son as the 4th century heretics did, once the Son was not or once the sun began to be, or something like that. No, because that would be to deny and to dishonour the father who has given life in himself to his son. So God the Father has given in his love the prerogative powers of life and death, life in himself, uncreated existence, and equal honour. How much does the Father love the Son? What else could he have given him? 
What else could he have given him? And that's how much the father loves his son. Now, we rightly glory in the way that uh, the father gave the son to the cross for us. But do you think somewhere at the back of our minds there's that little nagging feeling that says, does the father really love the son that much if he sends him to the cross? Have you, have you never felt that kind of niggling little voice at the back of your head? Or me? Just, okay, it's just me. Uh, but, but you read this and you find yourself thinking, how much does the father love the son? And the, the, the father loves the son magnificently, doesn't he? Extensively. Life in himself, infinitely. That's really all you can say. And if we're then going to say, why is Jesus Lord, as we want to say, as we proclaim the gospel, as we go into mission and that kind of thing, we ought to say, we say Jesus is Lord because the Father loves the Son. And that's what uh, the, the Father has given his Son. Where does the Son actually get his authority from? Well, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I get authority over heaven and earth and all the rest of it from my Father. And that, of course, is there in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 because the language of uh, all authority has been given to me is a, a, a kind of polite way of saying God the Father has given me all authority. Now, that means uh, that if we were to downplay uh, the, 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 the giving of authority to the Father and downplay the way that Jesus receives it from his Father and doesn't say, if you like, to his Father, I'm as good as you are, that kind of attitude, then what would we have diminished? We would have diminished the father's love for the son. And that's the peril, isn't it? It seems to me of the egalitarian trinity that here we've got a revelation of the manner in which the father loves the son. And it is glorious in its infinite generosity. How awful if we were to come up with an account of the Trinity that actually diminished the Father's love uh, for the Son. Jesus, of course, is no usurper, no rival. He's able to say, look, I got it from my Father. And uh, Jesus derives, of course, from the Father, we have to say, in a way that the Father does not from him. There's an asymmetry there. There is a difference, even though they both have life in himself, uncreated existence. What are the marks, then, of the Father's giving love? Utterly spectacular, breathtaking, technicolour generosity. What more could he give? And the other thing, of course, is utterly unenvious and trusting. There is no sorrow at another's good, which is the mark of envy. There is every joy. And yet unquestionably, we have to say that the priority lies with the Father because he is the one who gives these powers to the Son. The Son holds title from his Father. Now, let's just think about what that might mean for a leader uh, who in some ways would be the final fount of authority and the fount of delegation and all the rest of it in any kind of local church community context or come to that in any office. If you have been led, what would it be like to be led by someone who did not envy you, but who was giving to you with this kind of spirit of generosity and was seeking your good in this kind of unenvying way? 
it'd be huge, wouldn't it? Be huge. If you are a leader, of course, uh, then actually this seems to me to be one of the challenges. Here we have the pattern of God the Father treating God God the Son. Uh, This is the way that power is given, and it's given for these purposes. And actually, do I envy those to whom I delegate responsibility? Do I trust them in this kind of way? And a final question, of course, for those who are led... Would you be humble enough to accept it in the way that the Lord Jesus does from his Father? But this is a breathtaking thing, isn't it? Because as you think about the very existence of the Son, as you think about the authority that he's been given in terms of life and death, and you think about the honour that he's been given, how much does the Father expect you to honour his Son as much as you honour him? Who do you dishonour if you will not honour the Son? You dishonour the Father. Huge. And of course it's at that point uh, that you find yourself thinking that various monotheistic religions like Jehovah's Witnesses, like Islam, like classical Orthodox Judaism, which would talk about wanting to honour God but not honouring the Son you'd actually want to say what? You'd actually have to say that tragically they have dishonoured on the basis of verse 23, wouldn't you? You'd you'd have to. And that's in such sharp contrast to this magnificent picture of generosity. And how does that impact on love and authority? Well, here at least, we can start to see how the two coexist and go together. Let's pause there and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, we read these words of your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, we find ourselves amazed at you. We find it so natural to uh, hold on to things for ourselves, uh, and yet as we look at the way that you have loved your Son, uh, we find ourselves challenged at the way that you have almost emptied yourself in order to ensure your Son's glory. And we pray, Father, that we may be as unenvying in our love of others as you are. Amen.